I am a bit overwhelmed at the task before us this morning as we consider the, the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Let's go to the Lord once more in prayer and ask Him for His help. Heavenly Father and Sovereign King, we, uh, we bow our hearts and heads now as we consider Your goodness and Your grace to us. Just even as these words from your holy, inspired, infallible words sink into our souls, we we think about how we with unveiled faces behold your glory in Christ. How we're being transformed from, from one degree of glory to another. And Lord, we just we admit we we fail to understand fully what that looks like, what that is like, and we need your help. So guide us, we pray, by the power of your matchless spirit this morning. Lord, would you, would you unite Friendship Community Church in an effort to see Jesus glorified and to, to live in such a way in our lives, day in and day out, that gives him honor and praise. Lord, we love you. And as we turn our, our attention now to your word, we pray that you would guard us from error and guide us in your truth. In Jesus' name we ask. And all God's people said. Amen. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And as you're turning, I wonder if you have ever asked yourself the question, if you could go back to any moment in history, you know, just like teleport back to any uh, concrete moment in time in the past, what would that moment be? As a follower of Christ, I think it'd be hard-pressed, I certainly would be hard-pressed, to find anything above the resurrection to put in that spot. But given the glorious resurrection as the very centerpiece of our life and faith in Christ, aside from that moment, I think I'd probably have to say if I could go back to any point in time, I would choose the moment we're about to encounter here in Luke's Gospel in the ninth chapter. This moment of Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain when He unveiled on earth for just a moment in time the radiance of His glory. To behold the glory of our King. There is no higher, no greater love A greater thing that we could conceive, I'm convinced. So let us turn our attention this morning to what God tells us this amazing moment was like here in Luke chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 28. If you're using the church Bible in the seat back in front of you, that's found on page 814. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28, and we'll read once more the very words of God. And he, excuse me, uh, verse 28 of Luke chapter 9. And now, about eight days after these sayings, he, speaking of Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. 
And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Wow. Well, it's obvious, I think, that God wants us to connect this glorious event with what had just taken place immediately before it. How do we know that? Well, look back at verse 28 with me. We get a time stamp, don't we? About eight days after these sayings. So if you want to understand what's happening here, you should be asking yourself, what sayings? Well, just peek back a few verses, and you'll see what we covered last week. Uh, These glorious professions, these glorious sayings from Jesus and others. First, we encounter Peter's profession that Jesus is the Christ of God. Then we see Jesus foretelling his own death and then his resurrection, even putting a number of days on it, predicting it in advance. After Jesus agrees that he's the Christ of God and tells us what that looks like, his his death and then his subsequent resurrection. Then he tells us how we should respond about it. Three steps. Deny, die, and follow. Deny yourself daily, take up your cross, and follow. And these glorious sayings are ended. They're capped with this puzzling statement. Look at verse 27. Immediately before we read about the transfiguration, we see these words out of the mouth of Jesus. He says, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Boy, oh boy, are there all kinds of explanations for what this might mean. What's it mean that Jesus would presume to speak to his disciples and say, hey, there's some here who won't die, who won't taste death until they see the kingdom. And I'm not going to wade into all of the possible explanations. I should say that uh, I'm not dogmatic, nor do I think anyone should be about exactly what this must mean. There's a lot of faithful uh, men and women who have gone before who who have interpreted this specific passage in different ways. But, But I, for one, think that Scripture is making it quite plain what Jesus means. For instance, in all three of the Gospels that contain this account of Jesus' transfiguration, we see that the transfiguration immediately follows. Like it's literally the next verse after this statement from Jesus. Each time in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke, Jesus says, hey, there's, there's some of you here who will not taste death until they see my kingdom. And then literally the very next thing Jesus says in all three of those accounts is that he takes some of those there, not all, just three, and he proceeds to show them his divine glory. 
I mean, I don't know about you, but it seems like a bit of a layup to me <laughs> that what Jesus is talking about is this immediately preceding event on the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, I won't be dogmatic about that, and, uh, and I'd like to talk more if you've got evidence to the contrary, but, uh, but I think these accounts are connected, certainly in some way, very meaningfully by the Spirit of God. It's also interesting for me to note that, that Jesus chooses only three of the twelve. Think about that. What about the other nine? What do you think they may have been thinking in that moment? I want to pull you back from, from perseverating on that thought too much. I just want to kind of throw a pebble in your shoe there just to illustrate this is yet another example of God's sovereign choice in the life of His people. We've been saying it often. I think it bears repeating, particularly in America in 2023. We need to hear this, that God simply does not give the same thing to all His children. Jesus does not give the same experiences, does not endow with the same gifts all of his apostles, his disciples. Here, here he selects Peter and James and John for a very unique purpose. And we should note, they never quite got over this transfiguration experience. Fortunately, we don't have any extant writings from from the Apostle James. He was the first apostle who was killed very early. We can read about it in the book of Acts. So, so no writings from James, but later on we see from both Peter and John, the other two disciples who experienced this glorious moment in the life and earthly ministry of Jesus, that they, they never really did get over this. Now we're going to save Peter's account for later, but perhaps you remember how John begins his gospel. You know, those words in chapter 1, verse 14 of his own gospel, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, of course, in one sense, we've, we've all, those who have come to Jesus, seen the glory of Christ. But in a very particular sense, John is talking about something more concrete, something much more grand. He's, he really did see the glory of the Christ, didn't he? With his own physical eyes. Now, verse 29 tells us, look with me if you would, chapter 9, verse 29. 29 tells us that this whole thing unfolds as Jesus is what? Yeah, he's, he's praying. I just want to invite you to remember that prayer precipitates the most climactic moments all throughout Luke's gospel. As Jesus is, is about to do something momentous, we see him each time, without exception, in prayer to his heavenly Father. In fact, in the verse before this, in verse 28, Luke tells us that the very purpose of Jesus taking these three up the mountain to begin with was what? The point of it all was to pray. And as he's praying, his glory is unveiled. Luke tells us the appearance of his face was altered. He tells us his, his clothing becomes dazzling white. I think this is helpful for us to uh, to look at this account in its full orbed uh, uh, excuse me its full orb biblical context because Matthew and Mark also writing about the transfiguration describe this same event with just a little bit more color maybe a little bit more light in this sense 
Matthew tells us that he was transfigured before them. And get this, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, Matthew 17, 2. Mark tells us in his gospel that he was transfigured before them, and his clothes, he focuses more on his clothes, where Matthew focuses more on Jesus' face. Mark tells us his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I don't care how, how good your laundry game is. OxyClean's got nothing on this. It's almost as if the, the authors of Scripture here are grasping for, for words, as if human language is inadequate to fully capture what's really happening here to Jesus on the mountain. Now, we don't see this word directly in, in our Luke account, but both Matthew and Mark use the word transfigured to describe what took place which I think is a helpful word, certainly a biblical word, because that word transfigured paints for us a word picture. In Greek, that word transfigured is is the same Greek word for our English term metamorphosis. Isn't that cool? Like a blast back to your elementary science days, right? Metamorphosis. You remember how, how the caterpillar would build a cocoon and then in this interesting, mysterious process of transformation. It emerges in a new form. It's a glorious butterfly. That's the word. The word is metamorphosized. Jesus metamorphosized there on the mountain and, and allowing here in this moment his glory, his divine splendor to shine through his earthly visage. To put it simply, Luke tells us kind of bottom lines it for us in verse 32, they saw his glory. Now, let's stop there for a minute. I wonder if you could think about anywhere else in Scripture where this sort of thing happens, where the glory of God breaks through into real time. I can think of at least two places and, uh, and I got them here on the screen for you if you want to uh, chase these down and maybe meditate more on them this week. We see in Exodus 34 and in Revelation 1, this resplendent glory played out before God's people. You remember the account in Exodus 4? Moses is up on the mountain. He's prayed in Exodus 33, 18, Lord, show me your glory. It's a good prayer. It's a dangerous prayer. God says, okay, paraphrased, okay, but not my full glory. I'm going to hide you in a rock, and I'm going I'm, I'm to cover you as I walk by. And then as I pass, I'm just going to let you see my back, Moses. That's Exodus 33 and, and, and 34. What happens when Moses comes down the mountain from that encounter meeting God? Yeah, his face glowing. I don't know if there's a better word for it. His face is illuminated with the glory of God just from having encountered him in part. Dan read us a little bit about that, the New Testament's account of that in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Notice though that Moses' encounter with God's glory reflected a fading glory. It was fading. Why was it fading? Well, because the glory that was illuminated here wasn't Moses' own glory. It didn't belong to him. 
It was borrowed glory, refracted or reflected glory, not His own radiance. That's not what's happening to Jesus here. Just for a moment, it's, it's, it's as if he, he peels back the physical veil and it allows us to see His very own radiance. This reminds us of the second instance, Revelation chapter 1. We see the Apostle John, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he's, he's taken away, carried away in the Spirit, and he encounters the resurrected Christ in the heavenly realm. You know how he describes him? Revelation 1, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And I feel like I've heard that somewhere before. When I saw him, this this resplendent image of Jesus, and of course John adds a lot more detail to to his glorified form there. When, When I saw him, it's too much for him to handle. He falls down at Jesus' feet as though dead. Though in his grace he lays his right hand on him and uh, calls him not to fear, raises him back up. What's this mean for us? I guess that's, that's our question. That's a helpful question before we move on. Let's press the pause button for a bit, come up for air, and think about you and me here in southwestern Pennsylvania in 2023. How do we apply this truth of Jesus' glory being tasted here in our lives? If this is just a glimpse of the real glory that Jesus actually possesses, and I think one of the most regular and preciously guarded, jealously guarded times in our lives should be the time that we set aside to gaze at the glory and the beauty of the Son of God. What's that look like? We don't need to mystify it. I mean, one of the ways that we gaze at the glory of Jesus is how we encounter Him in His Word. What a treasure. And we possess the very words of God. That, that God loved you so much that He didn't save you and give you a get-out-of-hell-free card, but he, he, by the power of His Spirit, led His apostles and prophets and uh, along by the power of the same match of the Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, and we can open His glorious revelation and read the very words of Christ. How do you behold His glory? Well, you read His Word. How do you behold His glory? Well, we can commune with this Christ in prayer. If He possesses this kind of glory, and friends, He does, And we ought to not just treat this as an academic concept, but rather a very practical one. Jesus, you still have this glory. And there is nothing more compelling. There is nothing more meaningful that I can do with my time today than to gaze upon the beauty and the glory of my King. It's like that song we like to sing around here. Come and behold Him, the one and the only. Cry out. Sing holy, forever a holy God. Come and worship the holy God. If we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, if we believe this is his glory, then man, we should, we should work that way out in our lives. And, and I know we've heard this sort of thing before, but I just want to, I don't know if this is a clunky analogy, but help you to see 
how raw, how pressing this should be? I mean, which of us would say about a sunset on the beach, yeah, that's, that's too much of that. You're off on vacation and you're saying, you know what I've had, I've had about enough of? Those sunsets on the beach. Can't stand those things. We see just even through the fallen lens of our physical cosmos, the, the splendor and the brilliance of a sun setting on the horizon, and we're just undone. There's no too much button for that thing. That's something Jesus made. We think about the, the things in our lives, our own personal lives that we desire, that we delight in, the presence of being with one we love. Right, Benjamin? I mean, he's sitting here with his fiance, just giddy over there. <laughs> Is there a too much for that? Yeah, I got, got my Priscilla quota this week, sorry. No. Those that we love and long for. We lean into those things. Think about the music that just pulls you in, that captures and tugs on your heartstrings. These are things that Christ has made. Co-creator of the cosmos. Friends, there is nothing like His glory. How betrayed we are by our own sense of lackluster affections for Christ that we could say, nah, I don't need that Bible today. I don't need to lean into this prayer before my Savior and my King. I think one helpful prayer as we work through this point is, um, is penned by the psalmist in Psalm 119. The psalmist sings out this line, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. What a great prayer. without being <laughs> wagging my pastoral finger too much, I, I, I should probably venture to say there are some here who are looking at worthless things. The faithful impulse is, God, would you, would you, would you turn my gaze from that garbage? Even, even the good stuff that pales in splendor to you, Christ, and would you give me an appetite for your glory? Oh, that we would be people like that here at Friendship Community Church. What, what, what a faithful prayer. Captivate me, God, with your Son and His glory. All right, let's keep moving. Verse, verses 30 and 31. Jesus is glorified there and in that moment on the mountain. And, and in that moment, two men appear. Who are they? Moses and Elijah. We're getting better at our response time. we still got to work on our clapping. Um, we're getting better. Moses and Elijah. And before you just sort of like hop on to the next line, just pump the brakes for a minute and ask yourself, what? Moses and Elijah are standing with Jesus in glory? Do you know how long Moses has been dead? 1,500 years. Elijah was snatched up from, from, from the earth, didn't die. One of two individuals on the entire planet in the history of the human race to skew with the death ratio. He's been gone, though, 
900 years. What's this mean for us? I mean, just stop for a real quick application. I hope it's an encouraging application to your life. If these two men from bygone centuries are still very much alive and well, kept safe and eternally secure in the presence of God, then I dare say we can trust Him with our own lives and loved ones who are in Christ. We've said goodbye to some precious and dear saints lately. Not that long ago, Ruth Ann Maine closed her eyes here and entered into glory. She's more alive now than she's ever been. Jean Lyle and Irene Hodgson and, and most recently Tim Cicchini. You know, you're eternal. You never stop existing. He borrowed the words of Jesus when he's correcting the Pharisees. He says, they call him the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the living. And here we see it. Moses is still alive. So is Elijah. The biblical language for this from 2 Corinthians 5 is that if we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. What a glorious truth and source of confidence for us as we work through our grief and loss, even here at Friendship Community Church. Now, it should not escape our notice that both of these men, Moses and Elijah, have already had mountaintop experiences with God. You know that? Both Moses and Elijah had met with God on the mountain before, but in both cases, Their experience encountering God's glory on the mountaintop was a partial experience of God's glory. It was muted glory, if you will. Again, Moses just got to see God's back. We talked about that in Exodus 32 and 33. Remember that moment when Elijah was up on the mountain? There was a hurricane and wind and all this power, and and then he wraps himself in a cloak. 1 Kings 19 And we only hear, he only hears God in a still, small whisper. He's the God of the big things, and he's the God of the little things. But these titans of the faith, Moses and Elijah, only experience God's glory in part. Here, friends, here in the presence of Jesus, they get to behold the full thing. What's Hebrews say? This is worth writing down, worth memorizing, I should venture to say. He, speaking of Jesus, Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. We struggle, don't we, to behold what, what an invisible God, what, what God who is spirit looks like and is like. The instruction of Scripture is, you want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of His being. He's the radiance of His glory. Now, just think of the significance of these two individuals in particular standing there in glory with Jesus the Christ. Moses is there. Moses, who I'll remind you, represents the law. 
And then Elijah, who represents the prophets. Think about these two categories, the law and the prophets. That was actually Bible language at this time. The the law and the prophets was a way of, of describing all of the Old Testament scriptures. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 17? Jesus' amazing words. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. What's he talking about? He's talking about all that's come before, the law of Moses, and then the the prophets who have pointed to the revelation of God's truth and redemptive history. He's saying, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it. Law and prophets is code for the Old Covenant. And here are these men standing here who represent the whole dang thing. I love how Philip Ryken puts it. I'm sorry if you're sick of Philip Ryken. I'm not. Um, he's writing for the Reformed Expository Commentary. He's so helpful, and he says this about this climactic moment in the, in the uh, Transfiguration account. He says, In those days, people referred to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. And together, Moses and Elijah stood for the whole thing. Therefore, their presence testified that Jesus had come to fulfill the law and the prophets, that he was the culmination of everything promised in the scriptures. When Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the mountain, it was as if the whole Old Testament was standing up to say that everything was coming together in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? So here they are. On the mountaintop again, Moses representing God's law, Elijah representing the prophetic testimony of the Old Testament, and they're being united in Christ. They see the full glory in the face of Christ Jesus. And yet, they're not just standing there looking shiny, are they? And there's more to it than than the light, than the the physical splendor. They're, They're speaking, right? Look at verse 31. They're having a conversation with Jesus, and the conversation takes on a very specific form. What are they talking about? Verse 31. His, right, his departure. Now, that word is often used as a euphemism for death in Scripture. In fact, Peter, who is right there, I'll remind you, uses that same word, his departure, to refer to his own death later in life in 2 Peter 1. But that word departure in English as we render it, man, that's a thick word. Literally, the Greek word is, you're going to recognize this one, exodus. That's the word. He spoke of his exodon, his exodus. So Moses and Elijah are there, united by the glory of Christ. And they're speaking to Jesus of his death, of his exodus, as something that he was about to accomplish where? In Jerusalem. And from here on out, friends, I just want to point this out to you. Luke's focus, really Jesus' focus, just written about by Luke, becomes zeroed in, laser focus from here on out on Jerusalem. Later in this same chapter, we see Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He would not be deterred. We pick up here 
They're talking with him about his exodus. He had just prophetically announced, he had foretold with his disciples a few verses back that this was going to happen. Man, I'd love to know what that conversation was about. Scripture doesn't give us those details. But what it does do is whip us back, almost as if by whiplash, here in verse 32, to the disciples. And what are they doing? Well, they're doing what they do best. They are heavy with sleep. Verse 32. You've got to take it easy on them. This was probably at night. I'm sure they're exhausted from like, you know, the, the hike up the mountain and the rigorous schedule that they've kept in ministry, as we've seen from Jesus up to this point. But they're heavy with sleep, and yet they get startled awake by this glorious scene. And then guess who does the talking? The Apostle Peter. And Peter says two things, one true and one nonsense. The first one, he says, Master, it's good that we're here. Yes, Peter, he got one. It was good for them to be here. After all, Jesus had specifically chosen them to be here in this moment. They're seeing the glory of, of the Son of God in physical form. It was very good for them to be there. But then he keeps going. Yeah. And he says, so let's make three tents, Jesus. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now some see this building of tents, his desire to build tents, as a reference to the building of tabernacles, or perhaps the feast of the tabernacles in the Old Testament. Or even the tabernacle proper where the glory of God came and was made manifest. But Luke... Here in his gospel, he doesn't, let, he doesn't let Peter off easy, does he? I love this. He says in no uncertain terms, yeah, he was talking nonsense. He, he, he didn't know what he was saying. Verse 33, he didn't know what he was saying. So what's up with this tent impulse? What is a tent? Well, a tent is literally a tabernacle here, a place where you would dwell, a place where you would stay for a while. And we get a major clue, I think, into Peter's motivation for wanting to erect these tents in verse 33. Look at verse 33 with me, if you would. Notice when Peter gives his tent-building suggestion. Well, he says it when Moses and Elijah had started to depart. Right? Peter's comments were prompted by their physical departure. And as they're leave, uh, leaving, it's, it's as if Peter says, Hey, wait, 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 wait. Don't go. we got to hang on to this moment, this glory moment, a little while longer. Maybe we ought to make it permanent and set up some shelters for you guys to stay. Didn't know he, he didn't know what he was saying. That was Scripture's assessment. But remember, what Jesus had just said, I, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. Moses and Elijah were there to talk about his departure. What's Peter trying to do? Pull back the reins, Bessie. He's trying to preserve, he's trying to prolong this glory moment. Let me ask you, do you think there's any application there for us? Of course there is. 
We want glory now, don't we? And when, when God in His kindness, in His, in His grace, allows us to taste of His glory and goodness, we want it to stay. It's a natural response, I think, and not, not anything wrong with that. But the problem is, it's not us who gets to decide when and how the glory comes or goes. It's God who decides when these breakthroughs of His glory and presence happen. And this wasn't the time. I mean, it was the time, but it was meant to be limited. Jesus was going somewhere specific. And if Peter would have stopped him, well, you'd still be lost in your sins, and so would I. He needed to die. He needed to rise. But Peter would have been content to set up shop, man. Let's just never leave this glory. That wasn't the time for unmitigated glory. And friends, this isn't either. Sometimes I think you and I, we are prone to buck against God's timing. But we don't get to dwell in God's full, permanent glory now. Let's say it another way. Not every moment of your Christian life is going to be a mountaintop moment. You're not going to be dripping with Shekinah glory every day of your life. So, friend, in Christ, don't think something's broken if you're going through a spell or a season or maybe you can't quite feel God like you have in other places or, or, or seasons of life. It's not that something's broken. It's that permanent glory is coming later. God in His kindness gives us glimpses here and now. But don't, just set your expectations accordingly. He doesn't let us live on the mountaintop, not on this side of the sun. And we also ought not to try to manufacture it. And boy, oh boy, do we get ourselves in trouble when we try to produce or manufacture environments in which the Lord's glory is here. Probably enough on that. Glory aside, let me give you one more, just a practical thing for our lives. Perhaps you can relate to this. Perhaps you can relate to a season of your life that has come and gone. It's past now. And uh, maybe if you're honest, you could confess that because you're upset about that, You've experienced seasons in your spiritual life where you've kind of just stalled. You've stalled out because you're longing for those glory days of the past. Friends, it's not long, it's not wrong, excuse me, to, to look back and to say, God, thank you for what you've done back here. But we can't camp out there. We can't need to press the analogy. We can't build tents back into the past to dwell there. Some of us know this very well. You've experienced the death of a loved one, perhaps the fading of a career or a hobby which we loved. And I used to be able to play golf, and now I can't quite hit the ball like that anymore. 
Maybe a season of life that we look back with fondness when children were young and when they were close, when everybody was under one roof. Maybe a time when your physical body could do stuff that it can't quite do so well anymore. I laugh. I just turned 40. Um, not aging well. My hair's gone. I remember when I, uh, I, I bumped into my uh, former high school soccer coach uh, back home in upstate New York. He looked at me. He hadn't seen me for years. And he said, Zeb, you're twice the man you used to be. Like, touche. Sometimes we can do that. Am I making this up? Sometimes we can look back to the past and we can grow discontent. It's almost like we're wanting to set a tent up back in the past and dwell there. You're not there anymore. God doesn't allow us to, to dwell on the mountain here on this side of the sun. Our glory, friends, comes later. You will live in the presence of the most glorious being for all eternity. There will be a day when this won't end, but that day's not now. So don't, like Peter, buck against God's timing. Embrace what He has for you here and trust Him. Glory in Christ, glory is coming later. All right, we got to finish this thing. Last chunk, verses 34 to 36. As Peter is speaking, it's as if God cuts him off with his own glory. A cloud begins to envelop them on the mountain. They are scared to death. By the way, the cloud and God's presence often go hand in hand. I'll let you go think through and and, uh, drum up some of those references if you want. But from the cloud, look at verse uh, 35, excuse me, we hear a voice breakthrough. Think about this. Jesus, God the Son, is standing in His glory, and an audible voice comes from this glory cloud, the voice of God the Father, echoing, echoing His pronouncement over this man. I'll just remind you, This entire book, this entire gospel has been begging the question, passage after passage, week after week as we've been covering, who is this man? Herod's asking it, the crowds are asking it, the disciples are asking it, who is this man? And here, God the Father echoes his own pronouncement. He gives his own answer. Three things he tells us. This is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. This is the chosen one. And this is the one, friends, that we are to listen to. Let's just read it. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son. That's who He is. My chosen one. Listen to Him. We could spend a lot of time on this, but I, I, I do want you to connect some dots here briefly before we, we button all this up. There are only three times in the New Testament, three times in the entire New Testament, that we actually hear the physical, audible voice of God break through. And on all three occasions, this being one, the Mount of Transfiguration, God, God's voice, His audible voice echoes. The other one was, was His baptism, 
God's voice, Jesus the Son, is standing in the water. The Holy Spirit alights in him in physical form as though a dove. And then God the Father speaks from heaven. He said here, this is my Son. He said when Jesus was in the water for baptism, this is my Son. And then the only other place we hear God's audible voice in the New Testament is when Jesus is praying in John 12. He's about to go to the cross and he's addressing God as Father. Father glorify your name and then it's like the heavens rend and a voice comes down from God and he echoes out I have glorified it and I will glorify it again all three instances of God's audible voice in the New Testament center around the sonship of Jesus Christ he is in case you're wondering the son of almighty God God the eternal son he's also the chosen one god says if you want to uh unpack that more it's it's he's really god is echoing here an old testament messianic prophecy from isaiah 42 he is the chosen one and lastly he tells he gives those present a divine command a heavenly imperative three words listen to him I think that's pretty straightforward, but there may be a little bit more there than you initially grasp in the English as you're reading this. You see, anyone reading these words in the first century as, as a faithful Jew who knew their Old Testament scriptures would have heard those words, listen to him, especially in the presence of Moses, and their minds would have been blown because God is intentionally citing here, God the Father and fulfilling in this moment a reference, a promise that was given to Moses in Deuteronomy 18, that one day I'll send a prophet like you, Moses, and whoever, he'll speak my words, and whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. God had promised a greater Moses that was coming, and the instruction over this Greater Moses was, listen to him. Listen to him. And now in this moment, God is echoing from from heaven. This Shekinah glory cloud is just resplendent around them. He says, this is God the Son. He's the chosen one. He is the greater Moses. Listen to him. His words are the difference between life and death. Listen to him. So, application. We've got to button this thing up. We've got the table before us, and I think that's a beautiful way to close today. I want us to think about how we do that in our closing moments here together. How do we, as the instruction was given on the mountain, how do we listen, verse 35, to, to God the Son? Well, we're going to take our cues from Peter, who, if you'll remember, spoke some nonsense in the moment on the mountain. But by the leading of the Holy Spirit, begins to see this Mount of Transfiguration moment clearly later in his life, after Jesus' resurrection. Remember how these three apostles never quite got over this moment. How could you, seeing the glory of Jesus? James is dead. John's already wrote about his experience. And here's what Peter says 
later in his life as he looks back on this moment. I think this helps us to apply this listen to him command. Listen to these words. This is 2 Peter 1, and I think we've got it on the screen, the reference, 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. Peter's writing about this mountaintop moment. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When, Peter? When were you eyewitnesses of his majesty? Verse 17. For, we receive, for he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my Son, sounding familiar, with whom I am well pleased. We heard ourselves this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What's Peter writing about? This. Later on in his life, He's still stuck on the transfiguration. He's still stuck on that glory moment when Jesus is revealed. Now listen to what he says. He says, thinking about the transfiguration, and yet we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To, do which, uh, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's Peter doing? He's saying, I want you to get this. Don't, don't miss this as we close. Peter's saying, I saw his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And yet you, church, have something more sure than that. What's more sure than seeing the glory of Jesus with your own physical eyes? He says this, the prophetic word. It's the more fully confirmed word that did not come from man, that came by God the Spirit as, as man was carried along to compile these glorious truths of Scripture. How do you hear his voice? How do you listen to him? Well, Peter says, you may not have seen his glory. You will. You may not have seen his glory yet, but you have his word. And in ways that I can't fully grasp, Peter says, this is better. This is more sure. How do we read and heed the words of Jesus? We lean into the full counsel of Scripture. We become students who just are saturated in the Scripture, who know His words and seek to obey them. And I can't think of a better way for us to obey, to listen to Christ and obey His Word than to, than to take a walk down these steps and take some time listening to His words about the, uh, the ordinance of the Lord's table of communion this morning.